This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my interview with Elizabeth Hinton was recorded in June of 2021. It is my pleasure to welcome uh, to our microphones Elizabeth Hinton. She has never been on this show before, but we are going to correct that today. She is an associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of African American Studies at Yale. She's also with a secondary appointment as professor of law at the law school. Her research focuses primarily on the persistence of poverty, racial inequality, and urban violence in the 20th century United States. She is considered one of America's leading experts on on criminalization and policing. She's the author uh, of From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. And uh, we are extremely pleased to have her here to talk about an important new work called America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. Should be an interesting conversation indeed. Uh, Elizabeth, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Warner. Well, thank you for being here. This is, my gosh, what a subject. Uh, uh, let's do this. Let's uh, share with our Lewis at Large listeners, if you would, uh, the path that took you uh, uh, not only to teaching uh, and African-American studies, uh, but your extraordinary interest in the history uh, of black uh, black culture as related specifically to police violence and rebellion since the 60s. Well, part of it has to do just with my own personal background. Um, I was born in the early 80s and kind of came of age through the rise of mass incarceration, right, and the crack epidemic and seeing how these developments played out in my own family made me want to understand how we got there, but also made me aware that there was a larger historical and socioeconomic context that, especially in the 1990s and you know, actually really not until Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow were really being talked about. And so these were issues that I was very interested in in understanding and and pursuing and and also to kind of help fill in some of the gaps within U.S. history about the ways in which federal policy changed after the civil rights movement, the ways in which certain laws targeted communities of color in new ways, and especially with my most recent book, the way that marginal, racially marginalized Americans consistently resisted those policies and their kind of most uh, tangible expression in police violence. So in essence, does this story, not the story, but in essence the work, pick up sort of post- uh, students for a Democratic Society, post-Vietnam, post-1968, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, etc. Is it pick up there or right before it, so to speak? Share with us a little bit about that as, as ground. Yeah. So, so of course, you know, the, the, the period of urban rebellion itself begins at the height of the civil rights movement and the war on poverty in 1964, with Harlem after a 15-year-old black high school student was killed with, by a New York City police officer. But the, the book really looks at this, this period of widespread and frequent rebellion that we hadn't 
really appreciated or recognized that occurred after, as you said, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination between uh, May 1968 and 1972 through 1972 when, when nearly a thousand communities broke out in some 2000 separate uprisings. And, and, you know, before I discovered this archive and accessed uh, the data that, that showed just how prevalent and persistent this form of political violence was, I think most people just assumed that, you know, the peak was kind of in the long, hot summer of, of 67. And then, of course, the hundred some incidents of rebellion that occurred after King's murder. But but this this reality uh, of the persistence, again, and, and frequency of rebellion really complicates that story and tells us a lot about how communities were responding to the expansion of police forces and the militarization of police through the early programs of the war on crime, but also the shifts in black protest in general after King's assassination from a politics of nonviolence to a politics of armed self-defense and growing militancy, especially among young black Americans. What about, uh, I'm really curious on your take, as is, do you see uh, police violence, militarization, as you put it, uh, versus uh, the black community? Does it have a different tone in New York versus Miami versus Chicago versus L.A.? Or, or in essence, is it all the same? Of course, I, that, that's a really great question. I mean, of course, and especially the the, the kind of uh, strategies that are used, you know, in big cities like the ones you mentioned, but also smaller cities that I discussed in the book and America on Fire, you know, really tries to kind of bring our gaze away from the policing dynamics in cities like Miami and New York to focus on communities like Carver Ranches, Florida, and, and, and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Stockton, California, mid-sized and even rural communities that often get left out from our narratives or conversations about policing. I, I mean, I think there are basic uh, through lines, and that is that rebellions emerged in large and small communities across the United States where people of color lived in segregated, unequal conditions, and the police were increasingly deployed beginning in the mid-1960s, but escalating through the end of the decade and beyond, were increasingly deployed to manage the material manifestations of poverty and racial inequality as they appeared through crime and violence. And so the, the kind of the policing of ordinary activity that very frequently led to rebellions, you know, in this post-King era very often emerged in response to the policing of ordinary and everyday activity from, you know, Los Angeles to uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, when police officers, you know, arrested a group of uh, young black or brown teenagers for hanging out in, the, in a park or stopped to break up a house party. You know, these kind of routine policing strategies, especially over time, very often led to violent reactions and then on the part of communities and then increasing, you know, the, the increasing escalation of police force, which then could result in, um, in in full-scale rebellion with property destruction and attacks on police officers and community members alike and, and looting. 
You just joined us. Yours truly, Warner Lewis from the Flight Deck of Lewis at Large. Uh, got a good one going here with Elizabeth Hinton. She's an associate professor of history uh, in the Department of African American Studies at Yale University, along with being a professor of law there as well. Uh, talking about an, an important new work called America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellions since the 1960s. Uh, I'm curious as to when we talk about police violence, is it also uh, not as much recently, but what about the role in some ways in policing of our communities by the National Guard, as an example? Mm -hmm. Is there a difference in their take through their lens versus local police departments? Yeah, that's a really that's a really important question. And I think is uh, embedded in the shift that I was talking about that happened post King because the, the, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, which was the first major piece of federal legislation, which basically started the process of transferring surplus weapons like riot control helmets and bulletproof vests and tear gas and helicopters and armored vehicles and the like from Vietnam and interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean to not just big city police departments like Detroit and Newark and Washington, D.C., but to these smaller uh, rural departments. And so in this later period, the National Guard had to be called less frequently, which, of course, made these rebellions right less exceptional and, and, and didn't necessarily uh, receive the attention of of journalists and, and policymakers. I think in many cases, just like, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book about the cycle of rebellion, the National Guard itself could further inflame uh, the violence. You know, one of the lessons in the book is that police violence, whether that's coming from a local police force or National Guardsmen, or in the case of Detroit um, and Washington, D.C. and other cities after King's assassination in L.A. in 1992, federal troops, um, but but residents tend to respond to the escalation of, uh, of of police force and law enforcement with further violence and and you know by equipping local police departments via this unprecedented law enforcement legislation, the Safe Streets Act, with the essentially the weapons of the National Guard. Uh, we see again the same the same kind of reactions when police come back with armored tanks and um, and M4 carbine rifles and 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 uh, and the and tear gas weapons used by the National Guard. You know this tend to this tended to inflame the political violence itself. What about also, and they they may be inexorably woven together, but when we talk about this particular subject, how much of this uh, do you believe is from from the lens of the authorities is that we are suppressing we are suppressing political thought political speech political gathering versus a criminal activity versus individual yeah. criminal acts and there's a i know they're woven together but there is also a difference yeah and that's a, i think that's 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 such a key insight i mean you know one Anytime we know, and we know this historically, and we're seeing this today, when when we see protests for racial justice or social justice, for that matter, they're they're very often immediately criminalized. And you know, this is one of the reasons why terminology is so important. And I don't use the term riot in the book because you know the the term riot itself renders this political violence, which is rooted, which was rooted 
in the same grievances as the mainstream civil rights movement, that is, you know, employment opportunities, expanded educational programs, decent housing, essentially full political and economic inclusion in American society. This is what the rebellions that were about. But in labeling them riots, then they become something that's criminal, something that's senseless. And the only solution is not the socioeconomic investments that are at the root, but the solution becomes uh, more police. And, and, you know, we see this, we see this again and again, we, we, we continue to see this in the, this, this criminalizing response to protest in all of the ordinances and new measures that have been passed in states and cities across the country in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests. And I think one of the things that, that's, that's notable or distinct about the the protest for racial justice that we've seen from Ferguson in 2014 onward is that unlike the rebellions of the earlier period, they all started peacefully. They all started during nonviolent demonstrations or at vigils honoring those who had been killed by police and police responded to this nonviolent collective action with tear gas and by arresting people in mass and by beating protesters in some cases and some protesters then responded with violence by throwing rocks and bottles at police, by burning stores, by looting. Again, we are talking to Elizabeth Hinton. She is a professor of African-American studies at Yale, as long with also teaching the law school. Uh, and a new work called America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. So... Uh, you are keenly aware of the nuances of uh, contemporary American black culture. You're aware of the nuances, good, bad, and indifferent, of police and the police violence uh, and that tenuous relationship there. Help us feel a little bit hopeful or give us at least maybe, uh, if you would, maybe what what's a first step here? What I, f- number one, fundamentally, what needs to change, and beyond that, where what's the first step or first steps maybe to 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 pull back from this situation? So I think one thing that my research shows, and that I think many people are recognizing, is that the decision to embrace policing and surveillance and incarceration. And the hundreds of billions of dollars that authorities at all levels of government have have allocated towards that effort, I mean, resulting in the U.S. being the, you know, a mass incarceration society and home to the largest prison population on the planet, has not worked, has not uh, improved public safety, especially in our most vulnerable communities. And I think, you know, the protests of last summer and the calls to defund the police are really about realizing a different set of investments in our communities, investing in jobs, in educational opportunities, overhauling dilapidated housing, building a more inclusive society based on the principle of equality. And I think, you know, last summer, which many have called the largest protest movement in U.S. history, just demonstrates that you know, more people are are recognizing this, and especially the younger generation no longer wants to live in a society that's governed by police where and prisons, where, you know, many states spend more money on incarcerating people than on educating people in a in a democracy, in a you know, in, in a in a place that's supposed to be the home of the free, this this doesn't uh make sense. Um I do think of course there's been, as we've seen, a backlash to this this growing movement, this change in worldview. 
but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will continue to keep the pressure on. I, you know, I, I find inspiration in my students. I really think they are committed to, they, they recognize the, the mistakes and the, the failures of past policies and are committed to building a uh, society based on the principles of, of justice and equality for all, realizing, you know, the founding values of this country that um, have never applied to, to all Americans. Is part of, let me, let me bring in some social media here, the, the ability for us to see instantly uh, things that happen across the country, around the world, good, bad, again, and indifferent. We see George Floyd immediately. We see acts of violence immediately. That being said, uh, with so many people that the ability for anyone uh, to share pictures, to share thoughts, um, that's very, very good at times. It can also mean we can make mistakes sometimes when we don't mean to make mistakes, and people sometimes overreact to to some of those things. Would you agree with that, that sometimes our nerves are a little bit frayed sometimes? Well, I think social media has, has you know, very clearly changed the landscape, not only of mobilizing uh, social movements, but also in providing the proof. I mean, especially in the case of all the vi- viral videos from Eric Garner to George Floyd of police violence, they have really kind of made laid bare the the type of police brutality that have, that's been happening in communities of color uh, for for decades, if not centuries. And I think, you know, th- this this the, the viral videos, the the decimation on social media, um, especially you know in the case of George Floyd, in the context of the COVID lockdowns, has been an important tool to raise awareness, to mobilize people, and and to help. Pe- Maybe even skeptical people understand that you know systemic racism is um, is real and police violence, the 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 kind of murders of of people like George Floyd are are its most tangible and tragic expressions. Are there some things in this particular situation on the side, so to speak, of the police and on the side of the African-American community that are fundamentally different in 2020, maybe than may say even 20 years ago? What sort of from your perspective, have there been any kind of sort of either cosmic or, you know, big those big shifts, either in attitude, situational, et cetera? I think that there I think within law enforcement, especially you know, after Michael Brown and Ferguson, there's been a real push back against the, the kind of zero tolerance policing that characterized uh, the, the approach to the war on drugs, where, you know, police would come into communities and, and arrest people for, for misdemeanor charges and, um, you know, generally took a kind of warrior mentality, as it's called. I think now there's there's much more of an uh, emphasis on building relationships with communities and rethinking some of those strategies, which is a step in the right direction, but we have to go much further. I mean, I think one of the things that the, that, you know, the, the organizations and the movements that are forming in many communities of color across the United States are seeking to build and realize public safety through various community-based programs, through harm reduction, uh, interventions where community members themselves 
uh, deal with the problem of, of gun violence among especially young people, mutual aid societies, uh, support for survivors of crime. These are the kinds of things that I think are the most promising emerging movements to foster public safety. And, and they are not, you know, centered on police. They're centered on community groups and, and organizations. And I think these are the kinds of investments that we need to make moving forward if we're really serious about fostering public safety and empowering the most marginalized and vulnerable communities in our country. So after all the research, and again, I know that that, that while this this is a, a a new work for you, I know this is not new new business for you. Are you finding yourself uh, hopeful towards the future? Or are you finding yourself with a dim view? Share with our Lewis at Large listeners, if you would, kind of prognosticate a little bit. What do you see coming in the future, and does that make you feel better or worse? I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be a long struggle. I think that we, you know, this is this is really a, a hearts and minds fight. I think many of the divisions that have been kind of seeping under the surface in recent years have have really mobilized and, and come to light. And I think there is a concerted movement against, uh, exa- you know, revealing exactly or confronting the, the history of, of racial exploitation and oppression in this country. And I think we have to continue to be vigilant. I mean, I, I, I look to our forebears, my ancestors uh, in the civil rights movement and, and earlier who consistently fought against all odds and, and kept the pressure on. And, and, you know, we're continuing in that struggle. And, and I have to be optimistic that eventually um, our work will lead to a better and more equitable society. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I hope that, you know, my work and, and the work of many brilliant activists and community organizers out there, other scholars, and Americans who, again, you know, want a better, want to build a better society and world will ultimately prevail. Well, it is an important new work. Uh, America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. I know it was probably a tough work at times, but probably also for you, uh, I would think, a labor of love. Uh, Let's do this. If you would share with our uh, Lewis at Large listeners, how can people pick up a copy of this and also Again, you are have been pretty prolific in the past. Share with uh, uh, some information on how they can either either find out more about some of the work that you've done or contact you. Anything that you're comfortable sharing. The book is available at uh, at every bookseller nationwide. Please purchase it from an independent bookseller. It's really important that we that we support our independent bookstores. I am on social media on Twitter at e l i z a b Hinton, which is H i n t o n. And I'm easy to find if you just put me in your Google search bar. All right. Well, listen, again, thank you so much for sharing some time uh, with us today. Appreciate it very much. Best of luck with this particular project. And we would certainly love to have you back on again with us. Thank you so much, Warner. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis one at gmail.com. That's WarnerFLewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.